know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on the podcast, we are grateful for the opportunity to interview Dr. Paul Kelleher, Associate Professor of Bioethics and Philosophy here at UW-Madison. Professor Kelleher's teaching and research explore ethical and philosophical dimensions of public policy, especially climate and health policy. Professor Kelleher has served on two state-level allocation committees, as well as the UW Hospital Ethics Committee concerned with ICU triage. There's so much to talk about with Professor Kelleher, especially as the COVID-19 global pandemic continues. Well, first things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kelleher. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. You know, we obviously want to get right to talking about your research and your work and your position here at the university, but do you want to start off with telling us a little bit about how you got here, about your personal background and how you got to be really interested in bioethics and all the different facets of the research that you are interested in? Sure, yeah. I had no idea what philosophy was, and I guess I should say that I'm a philosopher by training and trade, and I'm one who works in the field of bioethics and also moral philosophy. So I had no idea what philosophy was in high school and, you know, not even the start of college. I was interested in math and sort of analytic parts of, of school growing up. And then I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I grew up watching these TV shows like, uh, Law and Order and uh, L.A. Law, which you guys are too young to even know what that is. And, uh, you know, I like to argue. I wasn't always the greatest at marshalling my facts, although I thought I could do the thing where either you pound on the table or pull a fast one with your argumentation. So it was it seemed traditional to at a small liberal arts school like the one I went to to study political science as a pathway to being a lawyer. So that's what I did. And then one of the required courses was a political theory course where this professor who, in my memory, was like seven and a half feet tall. I mean, he was enormous um, in this big booming voice and this beard had us read basically philosophy, moral philosophy books. And I was completely blown away by the sorts of questions that were being asked, ways of pursuing them, all armchair stuff, right? All stuff where you didn't need to know anything about the world. You just need to know how to think about the world and to think about ideas and to, and to put ideas together. And so I was completely hooked on whatever that was. So I asked him, well, what is this? Is this poli sci? And he said, actually, this is philosophy. And he said, if you love this, which it seems like you do, once you're done with my course, go to the philosophy department. So that's what I did. And then I be, fell in love with philosophy and went to grad school in philosophy and then uh, got a job well, as a postdoctoral fellow in a bioethics program at Harvard Medical School where there were a bunch of philosophers who had made the move to bioethics and thinking about both in promoting health at the clinical level and also at the societal level. And they started this program to take people who knew nothing about this field of bioethics, but who had done moral philosophy and turn them into moral philosophers who work on bioethics issues. And then the rest is history. You know, I was one of the very lucky people who got a job in the bottom of the recession 
in uh, 2009, and I've been here ever since then. For our listeners who might not be familiar with the term, could you just give us a brief definition of bioethics? What is bioethics, and how would you explain it to someone who maybe hasn't heard of it before? Yeah, it's almost easier to explain it to someone who hasn't heard it before than it is to try to present a definition to people who are in the field, because different people in the field have different definitions. Bioethics basically got its start in the traditional sense in the patient rights movements in the 19, I think, 60s. You know, before roughly that era, it was pretty common for doctors to basically tell patients what was going to happen and to not really consult them on their preferences or even lead them through reasonable deliberations about what their preferences should be in light of, you know, what risks they face and, and what options they might have. Now, just to make briefly bring us up to the present, bioethics has become all sorts of things. So it's still about that. It's about the patient-doctor interaction. It's about ethical issues and new medical technologies. And it's now even become so broad as to encompass various lines of inquiry concerning the ethics of, say, humans' impact on, on the environment and ecosystems. So, I mean, bio, life, ethics, ethical issues. Really, it's pretty capacious. And then there are different subfields that are focused on on different things. But it's, I would call it a, a sub-branch of moral philosophy that sometimes gets practiced by lawyers as well, and other scholars outside of philosophy who are interested in these questions. Thank you for that explanation. And to move on and apply some of the concepts of bioethics to some contemporary topics, I want to pitch you just a very, very broad question that we'll unpack a little bit later. How has President Biden's approach to the COVID-19 crisis in the early weeks of his administration differed from former President Trump in the context of your own applied work and research in bioethics? That's a really hard question to answer, I think, because we're so early in the, you know, the days of the Biden administration. Certainly, there is a difference with respect to the degree to which President Biden and his team respect what the scientific community has to say, open communications with the public. It's clear that the Biden administration plans to have more press conferences and more transparency with communication. We know that President Biden intends to invoke the Defense Production Act in order to secure scarce and needed raw materials and other items that are needed for the particularly the vaccine rollout. It's not that President Trump didn't do that. It's just that he used it in a very limited way. And it seems like Biden has signaled that he's going to use it in a more robust uh, way. President Biden has committed to give more funds to or to attempt to secure more funds for state and local vaccination efforts. These are all signs and signals that there's going to be something of a shift when it comes to the urgency of vaccination rollout. Certainly, the Trump administration deserves credit for supporting the development of the vaccine. But setting aside the development of the vaccine itself, the Biden administration has more emphasis on what are called non-pharmaceutical interventions, NPIs. And that's the stuff that we've all been doing for 10 months or however long it's been, the social distancing and the like. We saw that the Trump team didn't prioritize that. The Biden team is showing up at a time when people are extremely tired of being in their house for 
10 months or wherever they are. And it's really hard to, uh, to get people to, you know, we use this term lockdown. None of us are really locked down, but to hunker down for more time while we wait for the vaccine. But of course, the Biden administration is encouraging us to all do that to the extent possible, whereas the Trump administration didn't make that a very significant part of what they were asking the American public to do. So I think those are some shifts in the early day, early days. They don't really, you know, they don't have anything really to do, or I guess my identifying them isn't somehow helped by the fact that I'm doing the sort of research that I do, but it's the things that I have sort of noticed early on. Absolutely. Continuing with that, and especially considering your background in bioethics and especially in philosophy, did the politicization of masks and quote unquote masking up, did that surprise you at all? Like coming at it from like a bioethics lens and background, did that surprise you that suddenly, you know, there's this political argument to be had about it? I'm not sure whether my being a bioethicist influences my degree of surprise. I guess I'm not that surprised to see that politicization just in light of, you know, how we got to a Trump presidency in the first place, how we've gotten as far as we have doing almost, maybe almost nothing, doing very little to combat combat climate change and seeing that the cause of that is decades of misinformation and deliberate politicization of science and so so-called facts and alternate facts. I've, it's been so long now since the beginning of the Trump administration. Is that what they were called early on? Alternate facts? I think so. Something like that. So I guess that none of none of that surprises me. I guess just on a human level, I'm surprised when I you know am driving back from curbside pickups or whatever to see people in restaurants and to see people on face my Facebook page going on vacations and the like, having you know large holiday gatherings with people they're not hermetically bubbled with. Just on a human level, that surprises me because COVID nineteen sounds like it can be pretty bad if you get it. Uh, it doesn't have to be. Uh, you can have mild cases, but um, I'm pretty scared about what it could do to me, both in the short term and the long term. And I guess I've been somewhat surprised to see that sort of behavior. And I suspect that some of it has to do with not believing what scientists and and those who are trying to amplify what the scientists are saying have been communicating. To further expound on that maybe a little, if you were teaching a bioethics class to undergrads, how would you talk about the politicization of COVID-19? Are there certain bioethical frameworks or concepts that you would use to unpack this idea? And let's even add to the hypothetical that maybe you have some students in your class who don't believe that COVID-19 is a big deal. And maybe even in your class, they're not necessarily following some mask wearing or social distancing guidelines. How would you approach teaching this class? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. During the pandemic, I've been teaching mostly med students. And so I haven't been teaching undergrads. And, and I've also had the luxury of, of teaching online. You know, if I were teaching a class like that, or when I do teach classes like that, I tend not to spend too much time on the issue of politics in the sense of politicization. I mean, that doesn't mean I ignore political issues, um, the issues that my classes my classes address are always political issues. They're always issues that we don't necessarily have social societal agreement on and that it makes it important to to think about it in the way that I think moral philosophy can do. 
you know, moral philosophy traditionally focuses on constructing and analyzing arguments for or against a position. And so that's how I would teach that class. I'm not a political scientist, so I'm not an expert on politics or the politicization of an issue. But certainly outside of how that came to be and what might be done about it, there's the question of, okay, what to do when you have people who are violating social distancing measures or what to do when there's a debate in Congress or in the state legislature about whether or not to have this or that COVID-19 social distancing policy or, you know, social support for people who are staying home or the like. Those are the sorts of debates that we have in my class and we classes and we read people on different sides of issues and we try to get very clear about what their argument is. And then we ask, do the premises of their argument hang together in such a way that their conclusion is true if their premises are true? If not, can we do better to make their argument for them? And then once we've made the strongest argument we can for that position, analyzing whether or not the presuppositions behind that argument are correct. So that's how I would go about teaching a class. It's a bit, you know, the answer I just gave you is a bit meta because it doesn't tell you the, the substance of what I would say. I will say this. If there were a student in my class who were violating mask wearing or social distancing guidelines, they would be not allowed to be in my class. Certainly they would not they would be asked to leave immediately and then you know i would we would all have a conversation with a dean about what's going on and the best way to address it the university is serious about its as you two know as students serious about what it can do to limit transmission of covid-19 on our campus consistent with there being certain activities that continue to go on. And there are good reasons for having very strict policies, and I would have no problem enforcing it. Extremely fair. Extremely fair. You know, thinking again back to that broad question we asked about Joe Biden's approach and your background in philosophy, are there, or based on your observations, what are some of like the key philosophical differences that exist between the administrations in approaching COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, philosophical is an interesting word because it can be used in the very regimented way that my discipline uses it, where that connection is to philosophy as an academic area of inquiry. And then it can also just mean something like a worldview. I think we're, you know, we're definitely seeing that worldview change. You know, the Trump administration was at times hostile to the scientific community. Certainly President Trump sat at a table in, I believe it was California with wildfires raging and said that he disagreed with the overwhelming consensus of the scientific community that climate change was, I forget what he said, if not a problem, then, then you know, not so bad a problem and, and certainly not human induced. So that's a huge change in worldview, and it can make all the difference. There are plenty of veto points in the U.S. political system that will, in many, in many turns, prevent the Biden administration from doing what it wants to do in terms of policy. The power of the microphone and the ability to communicate the scientific consensus about issues to the public can make a whole world of difference. And so I think that's the major sort of philosophical in the lay sense. You know, there was it, President Trump was a Republican. Joe Biden is a Democrat. There are philosophical worldview, philosophical differences, both in terms of wor worldview and in terms of moral values there as well. We have seen this pandemic hit those who are most socially marginalized and vulnerable the hardest. And of course, the Democratic Party has traditionally in recent decades 
than the party that's relatively more concerned with providing social support for those groups, uh, individuals and in, in groups and communities, and using government power to make that happen. And I think we're going to see the Biden administration attempt to do that where it can. And that certainly will be a difference as well. That said, we saw a historic stimulus package from the Republicans and President Trump in the spring. So they were certainly willing to spend money. The question is whether it was enough and directed in in all the right places. I want to take this question to a bit more macro scale. And instead of just talking about maybe the philosophical approach of these different administrations, I want to ask how philosophers and bioethicists will look back at how the U.S. and maybe even the world as a whole approached COVID-19. What do you think that this chapter of human history, where our entire species is essentially faced with this bioethical issue, can teach us about how right now, or at least for this period of history, people in the United States or even humanity approaches bioethics or kind of what assumptions or beliefs you think that this period of history can tell us about how the U.S. or humans approach bioethics? Yeah, that's a really great and and difficult question. I mean, I think one thing we'll look back on is we'll see that an eroded public health infrastructure intersected with politically powerful forces that are hostile to science and evidence, and how all these together compounded to lead to hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths, and that the burdens of, and not just deaths, illnesses as well, and that the burdens of all this were relatively concentrated among those who were most marginalized and and vulnerable to begin with. That's an issue for politics, that's an issue for policy, that's an issue for civil society. And at the same time, we will see that the quote-unquote most powerful nation in the world struggled to have transition from one democratically elected leader to another. All of that points to how knowledge about the science which we had, knowledge about what's needed from the perspective of public health to quash pandemic to mitigate transmission. All of that will, we'll look back on that and we will learn lessons absolutely. Whether or not we do better next time, whenever the next time is, depends on where we are in that moment in history. And I think one thing that we're seeing is many of us are surprised to find ourselves in this particular moment in history. And, you know, others will be surprised to find that as well. And so when you have an opportunity to put the pieces in place, to support local state and local public health agencies that do the on the ground work that's needed to protect and promote the health of local communities. All of that is so important and it gets so downplayed when we don't have something like a pandemic threat. I guess the last thing I'll say in a very long answer is that bioethics needs to continue to broaden its focus from clinical medicine and the ethics of new medical technologies and reproductive technologies to issues concerning societal and institutional structures. And these are sometimes broader and more fateful determinants of public and individual health than anything that happens in a, in a doctor's office. And we forget that too. Wow. Yeah. You, you mentioned things that we might be looking back in the future, like, you know, certain lessons that we're learning. Are any of those evident right now? Like some of the things that we're learning you know, right now about the pandemic and about global health. And I also have 
kind of another question related to that, but I know you have done work and especially with bioethics on like ICU triage and that kind of thing. So my question is, what are some of the, like the unique challenges that have been presented by the pandemic in that sense of your bioethics work? Yeah, you know, I think many of the lessons that at least I hope we're learning, I've sort of already mentioned in, in some of these other answers, we desperately need basic science and to continue to promote basic science and to put public resources behind basic science. You know, a lot of people think that basic science that leads to pharmaceutical development is done by private companies and much of it is, but much of the very, very, very upstream advances are done at universities with because of public funding. And we could use a lot more of that. I don't say that simply because our university basically exists because of (laughs) its ability to get federal grants, although that's nice too. So that respect for basic science, I mean, the Trump administration, for all of its hostility to science, was 100% all in on vaccines. And that's the right thing to do. And the fact that we had this understanding of, say, mRNA, which had never been done before in the context of a vaccine, is just astounding. And so one of the lessons I, for me and I hope for the for the country and the world is just how important uh, basic science is. And, you know, we've already touched on the traditional public health infrastructure, traditional public health, non-pharmaceutical interventions. It's actually kind of funny that these are called non-pharmaceutical interventions. I mean, before pharmaceutical was a thing, this is what you did to promote the public's health. And now we've become so enamored with medical technology that we've defined these old school things, which work pretty well when you do them right, not in terms of what they are, but in terms of what they're not. They're not these things that we're most impressed with, but they can often be the levers that are most consequential in the, in the context of a, a pandemic. You know, I've, I've said that the pandemic imposes impo- terrible burdens on the socially marginalized. And I guess one of the lessons we learned is that we've discovered that addressing health disparities while in a pandemic is tremendously hard to do. And that's the wrong time to be trying to figure out how to rectify the social injustices that led to this in the first place. You can't turn around generations of inequity by deciding how to allocate a vaccine. You can't do it. That doesn't mean that principles of equity and the like can't improve or shouldn't inform how we allocate vaccine. But that's really not a great tool to attempt to reverse what ought to be reversed. And I guess, you know, with respect to something like ICU triage, you know, one of the issues that ICU triage protocol drafters, architects, authors struggle with is just the bald trade-off between how much benefit you could wring out of a scarce resource if allocated in this way or that way, and concerns about the fair distribution of that resource, which may sometimes not the fair thing to do might not be the thing that uh, gets you the most bang for your buck in terms of life years gained or or quality adjusted life years to use a a metric that's sometimes used. If you have a population who has a pre-existing disadvantage in terms of life expectancy, Someone could come into the ICU in terrible shape and need a ventilator. And if they make it through, they might have 10 more years of life expectancy if they live, just by virtue of their life expectancy before COVID. 
say. And then you can have someone else who is the same age, but by virtue of their life expectancy before COVID had 25 years of life remaining if they make it through. And if they're at the same risk level, you know, there are some people who want to say, well, look, you get, I forget what the numbers I gave you were, is it 10 and 25, 15 year difference. If you want to maximize your expected benefit, you give it to the person who has the most life expectancy if, if they're saved. But if that breaks down on racial lines and reflects background social injustices, it's not clear at all that the thing you ought to do is to wish to is to pursue maximizing a, a health benefit, allocating the resource fairly, whatever that might look like, and there are different ways to do it, is important too. And so that's where we're seeing this. That's one place we're seeing this intersection between issues of health equity and issues of, of triage. Yeah, absolutely. In bioethics and especially right now, are you ever considering the question of the role of the private sector versus the role of the government? You know, I'm thinking of like charitable things like Bill Gates or any of these other, especially domestic, you know, charitable organizations relating to health. Are you ever considering like the question of, all right, the government should be doing more or the private industry should be doing less? Is that ever something you talk about? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, think that I try to make the courses that I teach relevant to public policy. And so the question is always, who ought to be doing what for whom and why? With the subsidiary question, should the coercive apparatus of the state be involved to uh, get us to what we think might be the right answer to that first question? Um, So we're always thinking about the public sector versus the private sector. Certainly, the private sector has a tremendous role to play. I mean, we've seen that with the development of these vaccines. It's not, again, it's not like every scientific breakthrough came from the private sector or was initially funded by the private sector. But it's also true that the private sector has been extremely important in getting us to where we are today on the cusp of widespread vaccination. I think what we saw was that something historic was done in 2020 which was moving from the sequencing of a genome of a virus to an emergency authorization use of a vaccine that was made and developed and tested all within, you know, a very short period of time, historically short period of time. And that was that was sponsored by the the, the federal government. And it's unclear to me it could have happened without the resources that the government was m- marshaled. Could it have been done if Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and whoever else got together? And I mean, I suppose it could have, but I personally would not have wanted to rely on that. That's literally letting the whole world rely on the choices and what are charitable, you know, choices with respect to charity of a few very, very rich people. It's, of course, a question whether or not so few people should have so such large resources at their disposal to make those fateful decisions in the first place. But, you know, the fact that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos have a lot of money doesn't mean that the federal government doesn't also have a lot of money. And uh, I think we we saw what can be done when when public policy is recognizes what needs to be done in a in a you know world historic calamitous situation like the one we've been in. But of course, this is only one of many, many huge bioethical controversies that have been opened up around this pandemic with perhaps the largest one 
being with the vaccine and the question of who gets the vaccine first. And this is opening up, this, this has opened up a huge can of ethical worms. And I, I feel like it would be almost a crime to not ask you to kind of weigh in on this debate. So could you unpack for us what this question really means, who gets the vaccine first, and kind of walk us through this debate and how you would approach reading and engaging with this debate? Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. This is a this is a huge issue, and it's the issue that's now sort of in the forefront of many of our minds because we're we're all so desperate to have that shot or two shots, whichever it is, in our in our arms and, and move on with our lives. I mean, I guess one way to boil it down is that just about every report or paper or white paper that has been written about this issue about the ethics of vaccine allocation really starts from two ethical principles. They don't always get called this, and sometimes each ethical principle is broken into other principles, and sometimes there are principles that are added having to do with procedural issues about who's involved and who's at the table and the like. But the two substantive ethical issues are it's a good thing to protect and promote health and to fight off morbidity and mortality, and we want more of those good things than fewer of them. We want fewer deaths and more flourishing on the one hand. And on the other, and I mentioned this before, we have, sometimes we have to choose between fully maximizing to the extent that we could and allocating in a way that is fair to the recipients. And sometimes doing the fair thing isn't uh, uh, doing the maximizing thing. And that was part of the example that I gave you on the micro level in the triage case, in the ICU triage case. So from like the 30,000 foot level um, with respect to vaccine ethics, the good things that we're interested in are health and then also all the societal benefits that come from having a society that's not slowed down by the need to socially distance and the, the need to have uh, certain types of businesses closed because they're too risky for transmission. And then you have within that, you have all sorts of decisions that you can make about, uh, you know, who shot, whose arms actually get these shots. So let me give you an example about uh, uh, what an advisory committee for the CDC said in November versus what it said in December. So they had a, uh, this is the advisory committee, I think it's called on immunization practices. And they had a meeting in late November where they were trying to figure out who was going to get priority for vaccine allocation after phase 1A. So phase 1A had been healthcare providers and long-term residents and staff of long-term care facilities. And we're still in phase 1A in the sense that we're still trying to vaccinate fully that phase 1A population, but these phases were never meant to happen in full sequence. They were going to sort of overlap. And so the ACIP, that group, that CDC advisory group was trying to figure out, determine what they were going to recommend for phase 1B. And they said, okay, well, look, we we have we have many of these ethics frameworks, most of which come down to, on the one hand, we could work to prevent mortality and morbidity. And on the other hand, we could promote societal functioning. And within all that, we have to think about what uh, equity might mean and fairness might mean. And so even though their modeling had shown that there might be more deaths prevented if phase 1B included people 75 years and older, 
as opposed to including primarily essential workers like uh, teachers and grocery store workers and utility power station technicians and the like. Even though their modeling showed that you may prevent more deaths if you gave the vaccine to those who were older in phase 1B, their interim recommendation in November was to give it to essential workers. And the rationale was that societal functioning is something that we're interested in, promoting that, and focusing on these societal functioning issues also allows us to respect ethical values that are concerned with fairness and equity because so many people who fall under that designation of essential workers are people who are from socially you know, marginalized and vulnerable communities. And so the choice was to, at least nominally, the choice was to forego maximizing the number of deaths you can prevent in order to do this other thing that we care about in terms of outcomes, but to also respect uh, you know, fairness in the, in the, in the allocation of the scarce resource. That's not what they ended up recommending. So in December, they changed that. And they said, no, in light of the fact that 70 to 80% of the deaths we're seeing are coming from uh, people who are 70 years uh, old or older, they decided to not prioritize essential workers. That doesn't mean that they changed their mind about the importance of equity. I don't think that that's what that means. I think what they said was there are many communities of color and other socially marginalized groups that have many deaths, you know, uh, in them. And many of most of those deaths are coming from people who are older as well. And so states, it'll be up to states to decide whether or not they want to target within that, um, you know, older population, uh, say localities where residents there are more likely to live in settings that are more likely to have high transmission and the like. And so it's up to states to make decisions, you know, to, to, do, to, to decide whether or not they want to further uh, promote equity goals. But I think the ACIP decided that they wanted, to, they wanted to thread this needle between maximizing benefit and doing it fairly in a way that was different from the initial threading that they uh, proposed to do. Absolutely. And this is so interesting. Like, I feel like we could record like three episodes just on this. But in the interest of time, we like to ask our guests, one, if they have any advice for students, because, you know, mainly students listen to this, if you have any advice for students and what you are hopeful about or what you have been hopeful about, what you've been seeing in the news, what you think is good on the horizon. You know, my advice for students would be to not go to bars. My advice to students would be to not go to parties. My advice for students would be to hold on. Vaccinations are coming and you can do so much for your community by continuing to socially distance and to struggle through the rest of this pandemic. There's no question that this has been a struggle. And I think that the fact that this is not hitting younger people in terms of health, the way that it's hitting older people might lead uh, uh, some people in, in, you know, our country to think that, you know, any displeasure with the situation that college students or young people voice is out of place, but really it's totally understandable. We've all missed a year of our lives, but you know, the end is coming and we really need you to not be a vector for transmission. 
And those of us who, you know, we're never going to be able to thank you for doing that because we won't know that you didn't go to bars because most of, you know, people like me, professors are not at the bars right now, but you, you will have our gratitude because we know how hard it is to cut yourselves off from the social lives that everyone wants in college. So, yeah, I guess that's what I would say. Maybe that was a bit more, what is it to say, sappy or whatever than <laughs> the sort of answer you usually get. But it was, it's so serious. It's like the most important thing that students can be doing right now. Okay, so the next thing is uh, what am I hopeful for, right? I guess I'll add, I'll add that if you're interested in a non-sappy, like, non-personal behavior answer, what my advice for students is, is to look around and find a problem or an angle on a, pro- a problem that you see our nation facing and decide whether or not it's for you to pursue a course of study that is really focused on ending up in a place where you can make a difference. Getting a job where you can make money is great. Getting a job where you can make a little bit less money, but do a lot of good for people, whether that's in public policy or as a nonprofiteer. Um, is also great. And of course, you're at a world-class university where whatever problem you picked, you could find a course of study that would put you on that path. What am I hopeful for? I guess I'm really hopeful for the vaccine. I'm really hopeful to see the rollout ramp up. I've tried hard to understand why we've been so slow. I don't mean just Wisconsin. I mean the country generally. We have, we're not using the all the doses that we have. And really, that has to do with the fact that we just don't have, and ha- we didn't make it a priority in 2020 to get ready for this moment. But we're at a place now where we have to continue getting ready and we have to uh, improve. We're at about a million doses a day now. I think we can continue to do better than that. So I'm really hopeful for that. I know people who are like desperate to have the shot in their own arm. And like if they live in a house with someone who's getting it because they're a healthcare worker or whatever, they'd have this like immense jealousy. You know, I don't have that. I mean, we're not neither one of any no one in this house is going to get it anytime soon. I don't think so. Think there are people who need it right now more than I do. And I just want to see us start to get to the end of what we've been living through. So however that needs to happen, the fastest I'm hopeful for that. I'm also hopeful. The last thing I'll say is I'm hopeful for maybe even just a little bit of movement on the you know, climate policy side of things. Uh, and now that uh, we have a Biden administration that seems to be taking climate change much more seriously than the last administration. I don't have a tremendous amount of hope about movement on that, but I, I have some. Well, that's some, I think that's a really great perspective to have. Thank you for sharing that with us. And don't worry about being too sappy. I think we can all use a little bit of that right now. I'm not sure sappy is the right word, but, and this is another thing for your, your students, you know, coming up with exactly the right word is, is really hard. We know that as professors. And uh, anyway, I, I don't mind getting sappy with students because, hey, I used to be one. And I know what it's like to be in this just amazing time of your life. And, uh, and I don't know what it's like to have that interrupted by a pandemic, for sure. Well, in any case, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Yeah, this was fun to do. Sorry for the long answers. You, you guys will work there. You're magic. Take care, guys. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.